If you would, take your Bibles with me, open them to the Gospel of Luke chapter 14. The Gospel of Luke chapter 14. Well, most of you know, and some of you are going to know very soon, that parenthood is a blessing, and there's a lot of fun experiences that come along with being a parent, um, even more so, I guess, some of you would say, with, with being a grandparent. But things change when you become a parent drastically, um, and really overnight, whether you're ready or not, changes are coming, or will come, or have come. One for us was the fact that we were given a baby that wouldn't sleep. And some of you know that. Um, and, you know, that was more of a pain for Jamie than it was for me. I'm a heavy sleeper and Jamie was kind enough to not wake me up. Um, there were times I thought Emberly slept great. And Jamie said, no, I got up about four or five times with her throughout the night. But here recently, she started to sleep through the night, which has been a huge blessing and a huge praise, but she's gotten, gotten into this new personality of hers um, where she's ornery even at a year old. And so when she wakes up early in the morning, she wakes up anywhere between 6.30 and 7.30, which isn't bad for a baby, but when she wakes up, she typically gets put in bed with Jamie and I while we're waking up and, and we'll kind of play with her there and, and spend some time as a family in the morning. Sometimes she makes her way into our bed before I'm awake. And she's gotten into this habit where she sneaks up to our headboard, she stands on our pillow, she straddles my head, and then she starts bouncing up and down. And that is how I wake up most mornings. Um, it, it's even more shocking when she has a dirty diaper, but that's a different discussion altogether. It's an abrupt quick alarm clock for me. Uh, I've quit setting some of my alarms um, because I really don't need to now. My thought and hope and prayer this week has been that the Lord will use this text to wake us up. Sometimes, and for some of us, just as abruptly as Emberly wakes me up in the mornings. Because what we come to find today in Luke chapter 14 is a text that defines our faith. And it's something that we don't often think of when we think of Christianity. In fact, if we were to take a poll or a survey and ask the average person on the street or even the average uh, person in the church today, very few people might come to this text, although it is very obvious and very clear. This is the Lord's definition of Christianity. This is what the Lord defines as following Him. This is what the Lord defines as discipleship. And it's a very different definition than what most of the world would claim. In fact, there are a plethora of programs and ideas out floating in the world concerning discipleship and how to make disciples and what it means to be a disciple at each and every church and perhaps with each and every believer you might find a different concept, a different definition and, and even in a broad sense the the defining marks of Christianity have varied over the years and varied from church to church and person to person and most of them neglect what Christ has to say today I was trying to think through what most people would define 
the Christian faith as. And some things that came to mind were um, pe- people define the Christian faith as simply a better life. Right? I, I just want to experience and walk through this existence happier or in a better place or, or with a better outcome or better outlook. In fact, I've talked to some unbelievers even here in Weatherford and they describe Christianity as that way. as You're, you're a people who can't cope with your problems and so you turn to a, an imaginary God and that's how you cope. You just need a better life. It's a mental boost. Some people might say Christianity is just for personal fulfillment. I don't really understand what the purpose of life is. And so uh, to, to feel like I belong or have some significance, I turn to religion or Christianity. Others, and this is no surprise, but others would say Christianity is all about wealth and prosperity and getting what you want, right? That's a plague upon the earth today. Still others might say it's Simply something to help with self-improvement. I want to be a better person. I want to be better, a better dad, a better husband, better grandfather, so I turn to Christianity. Others might say I'm a Christian because I, I think we need a better society. Others still might say I'm a Christian. And This is probably perhaps most predominant in our context. I'm a Christian based solely upon tradition, right? This is just always what we've done. I grew up in church. My parents always took me to church. This is how we do church. This is just part of my life. It's a habit more than it is a faith. None of those things are what Christ would describe as Christianity or following Him. That's pretty self-evident, isn't it? Jesus says to follow Him and to belong to Him means sacrifice. And more specifically, He says it's self-denial. What Christ has to say about the Christian faith, what Christ has to say about following Him is not advantageous to church growth. It's not seeker-friendly. It doesn't appeal to a whole lot of people. We can go back a few passages where Christ says the road is narrow and there are going to be few who come to the faith and few who enter into the narrow gate of heaven. It's because what He defines as following Him is not easy. It's sacrifice oriented. It's self-denial. In fact, Christ is so clear and so firm on the issue That without sacrifice, without self-denial, He says, you do not follow Me. Those are pretty serious words from the One who determines our eternal fate. Let this be a reality check for some of us. If you are more concerned with self and building up your kingdom and your reputation, may God purge that from your heart because the truth is, it may be an indication you're not following Christ. This is a price, church, what we come to read in Luke 14 that most people in our world is not willing to pay. I do want to clarify a little bit. Jesus is not saying that the Christian faith is about sacrifice just for the sake of sacrifice because some people might think that. Jesus is not referring here to minimalism or simplicity. Some people think godliness is found in simplicity. That's not necessarily the case. 
And that's not what Christ is referring to when He says sacrifice is what it means to follow Him. He means and intends the kind of sacrifice that places Jesus as preeminent in one's life. Are you at the place of self-denial and sacrifice to such a point that Jesus is superior to all other things in your life, including yourself? Because that's what Jesus defines as following Him. Either Jesus is priority number one in your life, or you don't have Him at all. For Christ, as He defines discipleship, it is absolutely an all or nothing kind of situation. We see this truth even evidenced in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 22 or so. If, uh, if you remember what Paul's saying there in Colossians 1, it's a Christological passage and he's talking about all the grandeur and glory and, and magnitude of even Jesus Christ and the person of God dwelling in Jesus Christ. And he says all of this is true of Christ so that He might be preeminent. Christ even wants to not just be preeminent in the world and the universe as a supreme power, he wants to be preeminent in your heart and in your life. And He says that's what it means to follow Me. Sacrifice that makes Me preeminent. So it might vary from person to person, right? In the application. But nonetheless, we are a people marked by self-denial and sacrifice so that Christ would be superior in our lives. But we know as Christians, don't we, that it's sacrifice for the sake of gain. We're not losing anything in this equation. We're gaining everything. I find it interesting here. In this text today, Jesus mentions three areas of sacrifice. And they're all encompassing areas of sacrifice. And He's trying to stress the importance of, of just how serious His requirements are for devotion. What I find interesting is how Christological this passage is. That's a theological term to, de, to define or describe the deity of Christ, the deity of Jesus. Jesus is the only one in humanity, in the universe, that can demand the kind of devotion we find in Luke chapter 14. He lists these three broad, all-encompassing areas because He wants you to know, I demand devotion in every corner of your life. Nobody else can make that demand because nobody else possesses that authority. Your wife can't make that demand. Your children can't make that demand. Your, your workplace can't make that demand, though they may try. Only Christ can make this kind of demand that we find in the text today. And it's not just a demand. I've used the word already. It's also a requirement. Because three times we're going to find in this passage, he says, do this or you cannot be my disciple. It's an ultimatum. It's a contingency plan. And we have to stress even yet again that it's nothing less than a requirement and a demand from Christ. Here's the truth of Christianity. If you're going to follow Jesus, it means you're not in control anymore. He is. That's the foundational understanding of coming to faith in Christ through the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Luke 14 is not a suggestion. It's not a hint. It's not a question. It's a demand. And it's a requirement. And it's nothing less. 
And though it is difficult and convicting and challenging, and though it means a lifetime of struggling for it, it's nothing less than the Gospel call that we have to respond to. For the Gospel and your salvation begins with Luke 14. Sacrificing yourself. Realizing your humble place before God, saying, I can no longer do it. Christ must take over. That's what Christianity is. That's what following Jesus means. That's what discipleship is straight from the mouth of our Lord. I do want to say before we get into the text that discipleship, as referenced in this passage, is not a new level type of Christianity. It's the same thing as saving faith. If you're a Christian, you're a disciple. And to be a disciple, you have to understand Luke chapter 14. Look with me in verse 25. We've left the Pharisees' house that most of Luke 14 is focused on, and now Jesus has been traveling. And Luke writes in verse 25, Now great crowds accompanied Him, and He turned and said to them, If anyone comes to Me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be My disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile, it is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's interesting here how Christ is so unwavering in His proclamation. He's got great crowds following Him in verse 25. They're accompanying Him. They want to witness His miracles, witness His works, benefit from His presence. Here is teaching. And for us, in today's church culture, we'd say, hey, that's a prime opportunity for them to hear the gospel. Let's see how long we can keep them around. But Christ turns around and He says, here's the truth of the matter. Sacrifice is what it requires. That's the overall theme. Sacrifice broke down into these three all-encompassing areas that I've referenced to you already. The first one is sacrifice relationships for Jesus. That's what it takes to be a disciple, a follower. You sacrifice relationships for Jesus. Jesus. In verse 26, he begins with what is supposed to be the most secure and reliable social human institution on the face of the earth, the family. And he goes straight at the family in remarkable and thorough detail, doesn't he? We find him covering all the dimensions of the family unit from the father to the children, going so far to say even your own life 
has to be sacrificed. He's upped the ante quite a bit from what most people think is following Jesus and having faith. Some people are very willing to give up their family. Some people do it for lesser things than what Christ is talking about here. But he even says, you give up your own life. Very few people are willing to give up their own life. For Christ especially. For such a hard calling as walking with Jesus in a world that is hostile to the things of God. Very, very few people will give up their own life. But that's really what Christ is saying when He says give up your family, right? If I'm going to have to sacrifice my family and sacrifice the relationships I have in this world, I might as well sacrifice my own life. We are such social creatures. We need human interaction. We function together. That is by God's design. And that is also why the church has been instituted. And so to give up Jesus, for Jesus to say to give up all your relationships for Him is to say give up yourself. Now we know because of God's heart He's not diminishing that the family is a good thing, right? But we also can't ignore that what tripped most people up to following Jesus is their love for their children, their love for their parents, their love for their spouse, their love for all these other relationships. Maybe it's a dating relationship. Maybe it's a friendship. I can't tell you how many college students and people in Weatherford I've encountered who are unwilling to come to faith in Christ because of what their family might think. They're unwilling to profess faith in Christ. They're unwilling to be baptized because my family's not Christian or my family might ridicule me or my family's of this other religion. It's no wonder Christ would say, if you come to Me, you have to sacrifice even your family. You have to give it up. I can't tell you how many Christians forsake godliness, forsake holiness, all because they don't want to get out of their dating relationship. Because they don't want to give up what they have with this other person. Your family is so temporary. Christ is eternal. And He says, I have to come before any other relationship that you might ever, ever possess. Even your most highly prized and carefully guarded relationship. The relationship you have with your own life. Church, we care more about ourselves than anything else in this world. In fact, we even rely on our relationships because we want to make ourselves feel better. Christ says, you lay down even your own life for me. He uses this interesting word, and you've heard this reference before many times, I'm sure. But he uses the word hate in verse 26. If anyone, does, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, even his own life, he can't be my disciple. What does he mean by the word hate? He's not meaning, in the, in the word even, the Greek word doesn't mean an emotion of hatred or, or maliciousness. It's not a feeling-oriented type of hatred. It means simply a lesser kind of love and care. In the Hebraic form of the word, it means a choice between two options. And when he says the word hate, he means rejecting that between two options. 
What he says is when you have to choose between me and family, you choose me. Hands down. Every time. Now that's easier said than done, isn't it? Picture your kids, your parents, whoever you need to picture in your mind and realize that Christ is demanding such devotion that He says, when you have to choose, choose Me. My grandparents have been married, were married for 67 years before my grandmother passed away. Some of us know people that have been married that long. By God's grace, I hope some of you are married that long. And you know the unity that happens between two people that are married for that long. They truly are one flesh by that point in time. When they finish each other's sentences, it's kind of creepy, but it shows how unified they are. Even in a short few years of marriage, God has designed it for Christians where you are, you're intricately woven together, just like Psalm 30. 139, being made in the womb, you kind of depend on one another. You find comfort and care there. But Jesus says, even with the closest person you will ever be next to in this life, your spouse, you choose me. If there's ever a choice, you choose me. I was thinking through this text this week and I just thought, how applicable, how applicable is this? How many people need to hear this truth? I know so many people who have sought hope and fulfillment in relationships. They've sought meaning to life in a significant other. They've sought joy in in relationships. And every time the result is the same. They end up broken, deceived, betrayed, let down, empty, Every time they seek to be saved in a relationship only to find that there is no Savior in that relationship. Only one relationship can fulfill the longing of your heart. It's your relationship with Jesus Christ. And He says, whenever you have to choose, choose Me. Choose Me. I think our Lord is calling people to this in verse 26. And I think He's setting this high standard for our own good. He knows that He is our greatest need in life. He knows what trips people up from experiencing the greatest joy and the greatest fulfillment found in walking with Him. The greatest peace and the greatest longing is found with Jesus and He knows that. And so He doesn't just set this high standard to push people away. He sets this high standard because He knows this is what's best for you. Even more so, this is what's best for your relationships. Keeping everybody in their proper place. Your spouse will never save you, but Jesus will. And He says when you have to make the choice, you sacrifice all your relationships for Me. I certainly have experienced it. And I hope you never do, but I'm sure you have. Or you have lost friends and loved ones for your faith. It's a pain that not even God wants us to go through. But if the pain comes, He says, choose Me. And it is way more rewarding. Even with the pain of losing family members because of your faith, it's way more rewarding to be united to Christ. Second, verse 27, we sacrifice our comforts for Jesus. We sacrifice our comforts for Jesus. 
he goes on and he says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, there it is again, cannot be my disciple. Another absolute contingent statement. The cross, as we know, was a very visible instrument of torture, suffering, and death. You're not going to go back into the time of Christ and find Romans wearing crosses on their necklace. They will not do it. They won't have it engraved in their armor, in their clothing. They won't have it in their home because it is a humiliating execution device reserved for non-Roman criminals. What they thought were the low of the low. That's why most Jews were crucified. And that's why later in Nero's reign, most Christians would be crucified. Because they were seen as worthless. It's not until many years after the early church, many decades after Christ, that the cross would become a symbol of hope. For most people in the time of Christ, it is this torturous instrument of suffering and brutality. And in fact, it's really the main reason most people tripped up and didn't follow Christ. Right? How can a man claim to be a Savior who died in such a humiliating way, really the most humiliating way known to humanity at the hands of an evil and oppressive Roman Empire, how could anybody like that be a Savior? That's the viewpoint of the cross. And yet Jesus says, if you're going to follow Me, you get to bear your own cross. You join me in my suffering. You join me in my humiliation. You join me in my self-denial. You join me in my sacrifice. I do want to be clear here. Because some people have a wrong idea of what it means to bear your own cross. It doesn't mean that you just endure hardships. Sometimes when hardships come, trouble comes, difficulties come, and in life, you might hear or you might think this yourself. Well, I just got to bear my cross and keep going. People use it as in the sense of, I don't need to complain. I need to just have a good attitude, not be a complainer, you know, bear my cross sort of a deal. That's not at all what Jesus is saying. Jesus is talking about something diligent, intentional, and purposeful. He's using action oriented language, he's talking about doing something. That doing something is sacrificing an easy life. Sacrificing your luxuries and your comforts all for the sake of Christ. We value so highly our luxuries and our comforts. Even if those luxuries and comforts cause us to sin. Even if your cable TV is filling your mind with junk and worldliness. I enjoy my comforts too much to get rid of it. Maybe it's a phone or a new car or a big house or new property or whatever it may be. We enjoy our comforts too much to get rid of them. Christ is saying to follow me means sacrificing your comforts. We're comfort oriented people. In fact, we base our engagement and involvement in other things based upon the kind of comfort they might yield to us or not yield to us. For example, I'm not going to be a part of this because it pushes me out of my comfort zone. 
it disturbs my peace. Christ, on the other hand, says, true discipleship sacrifices comfort, get this, even for suffering. It would have been no question to the first audience of Christ when He says, take up my cross, immediately they would have thought of suffering. Immediately. What a high demand. Sacrifice your comfort even for suffering. But that is the demand nonetheless. We sacrifice our comforts even for suffering so that Christ might be exalted and obeyed. I personally would contend that this is most notably realized in evangelism. That's where we we need to sacrifice our most comforts. What prevents you and I from engaging our neighbor, our co-worker, our family member, even the stranger in the street, is our comfortability. The reason we don't go up to them and initiate a gospel conversation is because we are uncomfortable with it. Comfort so much dictates our lives. We base our church on comfort. Comfort. Doesn't matter if they're preaching the gospel. Doesn't matter if they have sound doctrine. Doesn't matter if they <clears throat> aspire to a holy life. I'm comfortable there. Christ says we sacrifice comfort and luxuries. And as we survey scripture, self denial has always been a mark of belonging to Christ. And the truth is, it's in the midst of self-denial that we actually find life, isn't it? We find the liberty to trust and be empowered by Jesus. In a few chapters, Luke chapter 17, we're going to hear these words right here in verse 33. We're going to hear Christ say, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. We've already heard in Luke chapter 9 something a little bit more specific than that. Primarily the exact same language with a few more details. Verse 24 of Luke 9, Jesus says this, Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life, and this time he adds this, for my sake will save it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Whoever sacrifices his comforts, his luxuries, his hobbies, his time, his energy, his effort, whoever spends his life for my sake will find the liberty and the joy and the freedom of knowing God and joining Him on the adventure of advancing the kingdom. I thought of Paul's word when I thought of spending your life for Christ. At the end of Paul's life in 2 Timothy chapter 4, right before he's beheaded, he's writing this book to Timothy. It's a very personal, very intimate book. He's really pouring out his heart. And at the end of that book, in chapter 4, verse 6, he says this to Timothy. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. What does it look like to spend your life for Christ? To sacrifice your comforts and your plans and your desires and spend yourself for the Gospel's sake? It looks like being poured out. 
poured out for Jesus. Poured out for your lost neighbor and brother and sister. Poured out for the advancement of God's kingdom. Church, that means for us, we no longer live for ourselves. And practically speaking, that means we're no longer living for the pursuit of retirement. We're no longer living for the pursuit of wealth or vacations or retreats. Instead, we're living our lives so that the Gospel might go forth and Christ be exalted. This is a text that not only defines what it means to follow Jesus from the mouth of Jesus Himself, it's also a text that refocuses our perspective in the world. Do not let the world dictate how you should live your life. Spend your life for Christ. Spend it like Jesus did. Spend it like Paul did. Philippians chapter 2, Jesus, Paul tells us how much Jesus sacrificed for our sake. Doesn't he? He says he humbled himself. Sacrificed all of his luxuries in heaven so that you might know salvation. So that atonement might be possible. And he calls you and I to the same standard. Whatever is getting in the way, and whatever prevents you, whatever occupies your mind and distracts your heart the most from serving Christ, must, it must be sacrificed. Church, for us, whatever is getting in our way from increasing our devotion, our passion, our eagerness, our dedication to Jesus, must be sacrificed so that Christ would be honored. That the Gospel would go forth. That the kingdom would be advanced. And that you and I might know joy in this life. The things of this world, the pursuits of retirement and vacation and a big bank account and a new car and a new phone, all of those things, they will not fill the empty void in your heart. They will not provide lasting pleasure and joy only Christ will, and Christ seeks to liberate us from such empty lies by saying, sacrifice your comforts and you will know an abundant life. That's so contrary to human thinking. That's so contrary to what the world has to say. It's so contrary to what your heart is probably saying to you right now. But I guarantee you, that right before Paul's head was lopped off of his body, he would say, it is worth it and I know abundant joy. I think and would contend that this very phrase in verse 27, taking up your cross like Jesus did, is the most clear evidence of your salvation. Are you willing to forsake your worldly comforts so that Christ might be exalted? It's a sign of maturity for you to choose Jesus over your family. And that's something we're all aspiring to be to do more and more and more. But to possess the salvation of Christ, you must be taking up your cross. And a person who takes up their cross for the sake of the advancement of the Gospel has clear fruit of a heart changed by God. No other kind of heart could do such a thing. Number three, we sacrifice materials or possessions for Jesus. 
We're not just sacrificing our relationships. We're not just sacrificing our comforts and our wants and our luxuries. We sacrifice our possessions for even Christ. Verse 33, he says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Material possessions, they grip our hearts like very few other things. They distract us, even as born-again believers. They distract us from Christ more than anything else. Our pursuit of stuff. Those are the very weights around our ankles. Now, I don't want to limit this verse in verse 33 to mere possessions. I think it's beyond that. I think it can extend to any worldly pursuit of perceived necessity. Anything you think you just have to have or do or be a part of to have a good life. I think that all can fit in this verse. Anything that we pursue must first be pursued through the filter of exalting Jesus Christ and advancing the Gospel. Serving Him. If it is not, it could fit into verse 33. We find most people chasing after the newest this or the newest that and I think the evidence is just when the new iPhone comes out, right? Watch the new lines around the block just stack up and stack up and stack up. The new car, the next new innovation comes out. People flock to purchase it, to have it, to own it, to experience it. Even today, we witness companies being built and sustained because of people's needless desire for stuff. But as I'm saying here, I think it extends even beyond just Material possessions. I think it's both a summary statement, verse 33, and another all-encompassing statement. It's summarizing in one sense because he says, therefore, he's summarizing what he's already said. Sacrifice your relationship. Sacrifice your comforts and wants and luxuries. Renounce all that you have. It's the same thing. Renouncing all that we have would imply our families, our, our own life, and even our comforts. Even more than that, it can apply to the two parables, right? The two parables before are possession-oriented. And so he says, therefore, based upon these parables, renounce your possessions. That's possible as well and likely. Another plausible outcome is to say anything that might not be explicitly mentioned here, such as your dreams, and your hopes, and even your plans, your longings, your desires. Whoever does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. That is the final nail in the coffin kind of statement. Renounce all your family, renounce all your, your relationships, renounce all your comforts, renounce all your possessions, renounce even all your hopes and dreams and plans. We're good at making plans. We make them all the time. But as Christians, according to Christ, we no longer are to live for our plans, but for Christ's plans. Plans of taking the Gospel forth. He uses this stern word in verse 33, the word renounce. It's an active kind of forsaking. It's a conscious forsaking. Don't just ignore. Consciously make a choice. 
All of Christianity is about a choice between Christ and anything and everything else. And if we could sum it up and wrap it up in a nice pretty little bow, it would be sacrifice anything and everything else that tries to take the place of Christ. That's what it means to follow Me. Jesus is raising up this standard saying, I have to be the most important thing in your life. I think our Lord is saying this for our goodness as well. Because we get so bogged down and so stressed out with the pursuit of stuff. Material possessions limit the joy of the human heart so significantly. And you know why. It's because nothing is ever enough. Right? Never satisfied. We're pursuing more and more and more. Jesus is saying true enjoyment and life and liberty is going to be found when you hold the things of this world with an open hand, let them go and cling tightly to Me and Me alone. How do you weather the storm when your house is on fire and burns everything you have? How do you handle it when a tornado comes through and takes away all your stuff and possessions and money and property? How do you handle it when natural disaster happens or the thieves break in and steal? You handle it by letting go and trusting in Christ. That's the Christian's standard. That's the call to discipleship. We do live in a, heart, a world that is pursuing wealth and possession, but Jesus is calling us to something higher in verse 33. He's calling us to Himself and church. It is always better to have a heart full of Christ than a house full of junk. Always. Well, by way of application, what would Christ say? And let's look at that just real quick. After mentioning these three things, you have to what it means to follow Me, you have to sacrifice your relationships, your comforts, and even all that you have, your possessions, he would share these parables. I won't read them, but in verse 28 through verse 32, these two parables about building a tower or going to war, and their whole point is count the cost. Count the cost. There is evidently a cost in following Jesus. But, as is logically true, the cost of something reveals its worth. And such a high cost reveals the worth of following Jesus. The Lord isn't setting out to raise the cost to rob you of your joy. He's showing you the cost of what it means to possess true joy and walking with Him. Count the cost. The question is, have you counted the cost? And do you find it worth it? Secondly is that Last little paragraph, verse 34 and 35, this discussion he wraps up with concerning salt. And we know that salt is meant to be unique and distinct and set apart. And that's exactly what he's referencing it, uh, using it to reference here. And in verse 35, he says, if it's lost its saltiness, it's good neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. The whole point of it is to be distinct. And the whole point of following Christ is to be distinct from the world around you. Why is that? Because Christ is distinct. If you belong to God, you must be like God, different from the world around you. So there's two application points here. Count the cost and embrace the uniqueness. Count the cost 
embrace the uniqueness because that's what it takes to follow Jesus. Yeah, that might prove to be a road of difficulty and hardship because as we said earlier, the world we live in is hostile to our God. But as Jesus is saying here, the cost is so, so worth it. Our Lord not only calls us to this kind of life, but He enables us to live it. His sacrifice on the cross and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit enable us to make such sacrifices and to know true liberty and true joy and true fulfillment. The problem is too many people think it's too high a cost. And very few people think it's worth it. The questions I would pose to you in closing are what do you think needs to be sacrificed in your life? And are you willing to make it? And have you counted the cost and made the sacrifice? This text doesn't let us just casually go along about our Christian faith. Doesn't let us casually attend church. Doesn't let us casually hear the gospel. It doesn't let us casually walk out of this place. The truth of this passage confronts your heart purposefully and powerfully. You have no other choice than to deal with this truth. Have you, are you willing to forsake all for Jesus Christ? Are you willing to give up even your precious family that the Gospel might be known? That Christ might be exalted? That God might be pleased? Because Christ demands nothing less. I fear we're not here, church. I fear we're not here. But let us push one another to be here. Christ matters most more than anything else. Some of you might realize for the first time you are actually not saved. Because not only are you unwilling to sacrifice some things to gain Christ, you're not even willing to sacrifice some of your sin that you indulge in for Christ. As Paul has said, and we've said many times before, behold, today is the day of salvation. You can be confronted with this passage, convicted of your sin, your need to forsake all for the sake of Jesus, and come to Him in faith and be saved today. Maybe it means for you as a believer, another step in maturity. And you need to consciously identify what in your life needs to be sacrificed so that you might grow in holiness, grow in godliness, Obey Christ in taking forth the Gospel and live a life worthy and pleasing of the Gospel in Jesus Christ. The questions we have to face because of this text are not easy, but necessary. And if this is the standard of what Christ says it means to follow Him, if this is what He says is true discipleship, you have to ask yourself, do I meet those standards? And if I don't, you do not belong to Jesus. It is that clear. Is Christ working these things in your heart? Lord, the truth of today's text is a hard truth for us to hear and handle and deal with. And so much could be said about it, Lord. We could just go on for hours and hours because it's so applicable, it's so current and relevant, and it's so... 
piercing to our hearts. The truth is, none of us sacrifice perfectly. None of us have forsaken everything for You. And You still graciously save. And we're thankful for that. But are we moving in this direction? Are we moving in the direction of self-sacrifice? Are we moving in the direction of forsaking everything? So that You might be exalted in our lives and use our lives for Your glorious purposes. Lord, if we're not offering ourselves up to You, what are we doing here? The only reason we're left here and not taken home to heaven is because You long to use our lives and have a plan to use our lives. May we forsake everything so that You may use us and be glorified in us, God. Impress this text upon our hearts in a way that I never can. Carry this truth straight to our soul. Let us see the seriousness and reality of the demands that You put upon Your followers. But also the joy that You enable us to live it if we count the cost and embrace it. Apply Your Word to our hearts. In Your name, Jesus, I pray.